And then there was a teamwork between the FBI, the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief of Police, and others to try to discredit the housing program and to discredit it through me. I was answering questions regarding rat infestation when suddenly the questions were asked me, what organizations, political or otherwise, have you belonged to since 1931? The moment I refused to answer that question, the city council moved in, the FBI moved in, the chief of police moved in, and the program was essentially scrapped at that point. On August 29, 1952, Frank Wilkinson, a Los Angeles Public Housing Authority employee, took the stand at an eminent domain hearing. It should have been a routine appearance. The lawyer for the developers rose to question Frank with a dossier in his hands. Consulting the dossier, he asked Frank what political organizations he had belonged to. This may sound like a broad question to you, but in the context, it was clearly understood the lawyer was asking if Frank was a communist. Later, during a hearing on supposed communist infiltration of the housing authority, an LAPD chief would take the stand, clearly reading about Frank from the same dossier. What was in the dossier and who had created it? This is the final episode of Still Spying, a limited podcast series on the history of FBI political surveillance presented by Defending Rights and Dissent. As always, I am your host, Chip Gibbons. If you've made it this far into the series, you can probably guess who wrote the secret dossier about Frank. It was none other than the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I did not know that the FBI had been following me until 11 years ago when I was 65 years of age. They had a total of 132,000 pages of surveillance on me over 38 years. In fact, the files will show as many as eight agents a day following me on shifts, pages after pages of wiretaps. Everything negative in my life, everything that was negative in my life, everything that was unfortunate in my life, I can now trace back to something that was directly orchestrated by the FBI under Mr. Hoover. It wasn't known at the time, but the FBI had been spying on Frank Wilkinson since 1942. In the 1980s, after protracted litigation that went on for years, the FBI would finally release all its files on Frank. They were 132,000 pages. So why are we ending with the story of Frank Wilkinson? Well, Frank's story is our story. After Frank was blacklisted out of his career as a public housing advocate, he became a full-time champion of civil liberties. Defending Rights and Dissent, the organization which produces this podcast, formed as the merger of two organizations, the Bill of Rights Defense Committee and Defending Dissent Foundation. The Bill of Rights Defense Committee was founded by a librarian who was opposed to the USA Patriot Act, But Defending Dissent Foundation traced its origins back to the organization Frank founded, the National Committee to Abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee. HUAC, which was created in 1938, was, of course, abolished in 1975, and the organization's mission broadened and became the National Committee Against Repressive Legislation. This would help spawn a related organization, the First Amendment Foundation, which helped to publish two books about the surveillance against Frank and about the history of the National Committee Against Repressive Legislation. These related organizations would become the Defending Dissent Foundation. One of the main reasons we've continued to call attention to the FBI's continued surveillance has been because of our own legacy of being spied on by the FBI. Surveillance by the FBI against the National Committee to Abolish HUAC 
was even cited in the church committee's report as an abuse of FBI power. Unfortunately, this type of surveillance has not stopped. That's why roughly one year ago, Defending Rights and Dissent issued the groundbreaking report, Still Spy on Dissent, the Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse. This report documents known instances of FBI First Amendment abuse between approximately 2010 and 2020. As part of the report, we want to not only show how instances of political surveillance were not isolated issues, but part of a larger problem. We want to go even further, though, and show how these abuses fit into the larger history of FBI political surveillance. This podcast grew out of that report. Over the course of the series, we've explored how the current FBI guidelines make it easier for the FBI to engage in pernicious political spying. We've also looked at how the current FBI targets dissent today, but we've always made an effort to link that to a larger discussion of the FBI's function as a domestic intelligence agency and how for over 110 years, that function has had a negative impact on our democracy. The current attacks on the Black Lives Matter movement cannot be separated from the FBI's historic spying on the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And while we know how the FBI demonized, scapegoated, and surveilled Muslim Americans and Arab Americans as part of the post-9-11 war on terror, this wasn't the first time they did this. In the 1990s, the FBI had a program of bulk surveillance of Arab Americans called Operation Vulgar Betrayal. In the 1970s, it had an even broader, more abusive program targeting Arab Americans called Operation Boulder. In order to understand how the FBI became the main vehicle for domestic political repression in the United States, you have to understand the scope of that repression. You have to understand how the FBI agents coming and visiting Student for Justice and Palestine activists at their homes aren't separate from them infiltrating an anti-Keystone pipeline protest group, and that both instances are part of an even longer legacy of attacks on dissent. While this podcast is ending, the work of defending rights and dissent is not. We're going to keep documenting and exposing FBI political surveillance. We're also going to keep working on many of the core civil liberties issues we've worked on for a long time, including opposing the U.S. government's use of the Espionage Act against national security whistleblowers and journalists who report on U.S. government abuses of power, such as war crimes or unconstitutional surveillance. We're going to be doing a limited podcast series, much like this one, on that topic. So you're going to want to look out for it. And make sure to visit us on the web, not just at stillspying.org, but at rightsanddissent.org. But for now, I will leave you with our story. To discuss more about our own history with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I'm joined today by Kit Gage. Kit is the former director of the National Committee Against Repressive Legislation, which eventually became the Defending Dissent Foundation, which eventually merged with the Bill of Rights Defense Committee to become Defending Rights and Dissent. Kit, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with the, the big question here. Who was Frank Wilkinson? Frank was, I'd say, I'd say Frank was a privileged man, privileged white man, whose father was a well-respected minister. Frank had, you know, raised 
including during the Depression, not knowing anything about really the Depression. So it became somewhat surprising that he would end up deciding to support support the underdog in one way or in several different kinds of ways. But what happened after college, he, again, reflecting his means, he took a, a trip to the Holy Land. I think he was planning on being a minister and wanted to, you know, to go to the Holy Land to sort of see, see where it all began. And interestingly, he ended up living in poverty with beggars, and he ended up being uh, pretty much an atheist, um, but who, for the first time, understood that also was just horrified by poverty. And when he came back to the States, he actually stopped off and visited Jane Addams' Hull House and then went back home to L.A., to, then to L.A., and joined in uh, the L.A. Housing Authority working on public housing. So it's a really interesting transformation from someone of privilege who was shocked into reality and then spent the rest of his life dealing with, you know, people who people who were under attack or didn't have the kind of rights that others did. So how did Frank come to the attention of the FBI then? Public housing. When he was uh, he was the assistant director to the L.A. Housing Department and was put in charge of a what was going to be a pretty massive public housing development that was going to be located in Chavez Ravine in L.A. And it was going to be integrated. It was going to be large and it was going to develop it. a huge area, which first was was going to be, it was a then a slum, and he worked with the people in the in the air in that area, and promised them that they would be, you know, if they left their their homes, that he would he promised them that they would be they would have homes in the newly built development. Well, the developers in LA, which was beginning to be a, a pretty booming. It was starting to be a boomtown, real estate-wise. They saw that plot of land and said, wow, we'd like to get our hands on that, and decided to do so by going after the guy at the top, which was Frank Wilkinson. And they, so that, that, was, that was how he got the attention. They brought, they, the, the developers brought Frank to the attention of the, uh, what are called little HUACs, House on American Activities Committees, sort of state by state. Um, and they said, this guy's a communist because he's working with poor people. Not, it's not clear they had any other information besides that, but that was, and, and we wanted, we want to, this development is terrible and, you know, you've got to stop this guy. So they hauled him in front of a hearing, um, the little HUAC did, and asked him if he was a communist and he refused to tell them. He didn't refuse to tell them taking the fifth against self-incrimination, but rather uh, he, he worded it in a peculiar way. But they, the, the result was pretty much the same, which was that he was that was front page news in the L.A. papers. And the next day he was fired and the development then Dot was killed, and those people didn't get the houses that Frank had promised them, and that became Dodger Stadium. So the FBI essentially helped to kill a public housing project. 
Well, it wasn't, at that point, it wasn't probably the FBI, although it's not clear. I mean, the FBI was involved. It's, I don't think it's entirely clear. I mean, the FBI didn't start that process. The, the realtors yeah. started it in that case and probably helped bring Frank to, to the attention of, of the little Hueck, but certainly of the FBI at that point. I mean, the FBI shared his FBI file with the developers, right? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I've not read, because I wasn't allowed to, the 186,000 pages of FBI files. And even if I had, I probably wouldn't remember that detail. But right around that time, he was he was certainly under suspicion of being a leftist. Uh, and in fact, uh, at that time, he, he was in the Communist Party in California, but he wasn't he wasn't going to say because he didn't think it was anybody's business. So at this point, he's driven out of his first career and Frank goes yes. on to become a campaigner for, for civil liberties, uh, eventually right. setting into motion the series of events that has led you and I to be talking to each other today. Uh, what are some of the civil liberties activities he gets up to after he has to get a new career? Well, he at that point becomes a very public figure. And well, a lot of people on the East Coast had been hauled in front of Little little Huex and, and the main Huex. I'm going to say Huex for House on American Activities Committee. Uh, not many people on the West Coast at that point had been uh, hauled in. And so folks on the East Coast had started up a group called the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee. And those folks invited Frank to come meet with them and to join them as a national organizer, which is what he did for several years, traveling all over, traveling all over the country, including in in the West Coast, including in places like Gary and I mean, all, all sorts of interesting places. He you know, he helped to organize a fundraiser in Carnegie Hall, which was stink bombed by the FBI or the CIA. Yeah, he organized a fight back against an attack on nine Gary Indiana steelworkers. He worked with often with the ACLU, who had lawyers in more parts of the country than most, and in and also with the National Lawyers Guild, which was really the main organization that represented people hauled in front of HUAC. He stopped working with the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee about the time that they, that aforementioned meeting with the Gary Steelworkers. He, it was a great success. He got the charges pretty much dropped against all of them, and or not he, but he, he and, and the movement that he helped create, because what he was doing there and what was sort of the signature work that he did was when people got attacked, everybody else kind of wanted to shy away from them, go to the other side of the street, pretend they didn't know him. And Frank instead said, no, you you know, we we need to stand up for these people. And he'd get several different people in a, in a community to stand up. And then increasingly more and more people would stand up. He'd make sure there was legal representation. So pretty soon there was, it started to, to be sort of bad press for the government that was going after these folks. So, for example, in Gary, he came back from this great victory and the ECLC folks, several of them said, that was great, Frank, but we don't want you representing communists. And he kind of looked at him and said, excuse me, because what the ECLC was saying is, we want you to, to it's okay if you depend, defend people who are wrongly accused of being communists, but not actual communists. And he thought that was completely ridiculous. and functionally impossible to do. And especially because a lot of the civil rights movements and other kinds of poor people's movements 
included people of a variety of political bents, and they were doing the same kind of work. So to say that, you know, it was just the, the communists were bad and the other people were good was bizarre and really dysfunctional for those movements. So anyway, so he then parted ways with the ECLC saying, and helped to set up the National Committee to abolish HUAC, which had the most stupid acronym of NCOHUAC. And that organization eventually becomes NCARL, which eventually becomes... After, after HUAC was functionally destroyed, then you have to change your name because you've abolished HUAC. So then you become the National Committee Against Repressive Legislation, which is another stupid name for an organization. But that's where we are. Fanny Rice, in a sense, that was a great name for an organization. I just just want the listeners to know that. Uh, Thank you. Yes. So, ha- so Frank's career shifts. He goes from public housing advocate to civil liberties advocate. How does the FBI respond to Frank's shifting careers? Well, they ra- they ramped up uh, um, they ramped up the activities because he's going all over the place at this point. Often following the little HUEX where they were, or the or the main HUEX where it would be having a hearing. So he was aiming at that point. He was aiming directly at the FBI and at, at HUEX to try to solve it. And that J. Edgar Hoover, uh, in particular, but really the both organizations thought he was um, he had to be targeted and stopped. And they tried. In a bunch of different kinds of ways, including the stink bomb at Carnegie Hall, but, you know, much more dangerous kinds of ways, including uh, up in, until 19, I think it was 64. In 1964, they learned about an assassination attempt against Frank and reported that it was going to happen and that they should watch it. And they, and they then reported a few days later that it did not happen. The most frightening documents I obtained from the FBI was the fact that I was due to have been assassinated in this house directly across the street from me here. The FBI record reads from the agent in charge in Los Angeles to J. Edgar Hoover, subject Frank Wilkinson. The name of the person who was to kill me is blacked out. So it begins with to assist in an assassination of Frank Wilkinson when he speaks tonight at a meeting sponsored by the American Civil Liberties Union. You know, I, I should say that uh, Fred Hampton wasn't so lucky in Chicago. He was killed in a raid that included the Chicago police and the FBI. But the FBI had up to eight full-time people trailing him, reporting on his every activity, reporting, finding out where he was going, when, how. And so, for example, that first hearing in California Nothing ever, nothing happened as a result of that, except for Frank losing his job and changing his career, and obviously all those poor people losing their housing. But when he went to Atlanta for a full HUAC hearing, he arrived at his hotel and wasn't there a minute before an FBI agent knocks on his door and hands him a subpoena to testify before the hearing that he was there to protest. So they knew his flight, his hotels. You know, if uh, you know, if he needed a diary of his lifetime of activities, all he needed was that FBI file because they knew they had informants and they had people tailing him everywhere. Let's talk about Atlanta, because in that case, uh, Frank ends up going before the Supreme Court and eventually going going to prison. Uh, Why was Frank in Atlanta and how does this end up with Frank before the Supreme Court? So Atlanta, it's kind of the same situation as in California. He is asked if he's a member of the Communist Party. And as he always did, 
he said, but he had honed his language more clearly. And he basically said, you know, until such time as there is, you know, there's no opprobrium, there's no, uh, until such time as the, is your membership in any organization is no, is no business of any government body. I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to tell you whether, you know, what anything about my political activities. So, and he did, he never, he never did until after the book about him was written shortly before he died. He, so he's in Atlanta. He's called to testify. He, he takes the first amendment rather than saying, I won't tell you on the grounds that it may incriminate me. He says, I won't tell you because it's none of your dang business. And they, at that point, they charge him with refusal to testify before Congress because this is a committee of the Congress, of the U.S. Congress. And he then, he and Carl Braden, who also testified at the same time, Carl being a, another, at that point, middle-aged white guy, but Carl was a very effective, active civil rights worker who had early on drawn attention because he secretly sold his, bought and then sold a house to a to some black friends. In Along with his a, wife, Anne Braden, who is, I believe, Anne Braden, exactly. Christ, who is yeah, named Christ, by Martin Christ. Luther King and Letter from Birmingham Jail. Just, just Sorry. throwing that in there. Uh, Anne Braden yeah. is, is mentioned by name in Letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Oh, yeah. No, right. Carl, yes. Carl and Anne were, they were organizers for SCAF which was one of the the main Southern civil rights organizations, which which they got hired. Frank helped to get them hired for that because he was he was also in the South working with Dombrowski and a bunch of other folks doing civil rights work who were doing civil rights work who were under the same kind of attack by the FBI. And it was fairly clear when Frank was doing that work as well. Anyway, so Carl and Frank were both hauled in front of HUAC in Atlanta, and they both they both took the First Amendment at that point, and so they were both tried together, and they were they appealed their on purpose they appealed their their cases to the U.S. Supreme Court, and eventually this was in fifty nine to sixty one. Uh, they eventually lost the case in the Supreme Court by one vote, and that vote was, it was clear that that was because of the testimony of one unnamed um, woman who said that she had met with Frank and, and, and had asked him to help to organize a chapter in San Diego, uh, not of the Communist Party, but of a group that Frank was wor- publicly working with that was a civil liberties group. And she, she, she had testified, or had her information, not her testimony, had indicated that she thought that Frank was a communist. He never got to, te- to have her as a witness in his case. He, she was never cross-examined, but her, her allegation was took the form of having the Supreme Court uphold his conviction. So then he and Carl uh, went to different federal prisons for uh, about a year, mostly in the South. Another fascinating experience for them. And they were given a send-off by Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yes. And in fact, I think King signed it. Um, King, I'm not seeing the exact quote, but King basically said to the um, to the group that that he helped to assemble that with without Frank, or he said, oh, I hear us. Uh, yeah, he said, these men are going to jail for us. Yeah. Um, rec- recognizing that you know, without civil liberties, you can't do the civil rights work that they were all working hard to do. You know, and then they had a private dinner with Coretta Scott and MLK before going to jail. So, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, there was a three-page 
article in the New York Times reporting on the Supreme Court decision. Wow. So this was, this was a big case. I mean, it was intended to be a big case, but it succeeded way beyond anybody's expectations. And after Frank gets out of jail, he is even more of a celebrity in, in a good sense than he had been before. He got, he went to colleges all over, colleges and, other, and communities all over the country to speak out. And his typical process for, you know, for doing all this work and, you know, was getting petitions signed, for example, by different kinds of folks. And he, he, one of his favorite was constitutional law professors, but he would also go to the organization of historians. He would get artists and writers. He would get lots of different kinds of folks signing petitions, objecting to the House on American Activities Committee. So not, and not really so much the FBI, because you, you have to remember that the role of the FBI was not well understood um, all pretty much all during this time. I mean, you'd have some people saying, you know, I think there's, you know, I think somebody's bugging my phone. I think there's some, you know, there's kind of some kind of disruption here. I don't know whether it's right wingers or what, but it was not it was not clear until considerably later, really, until after Watergate and the church and Pike committees started reporting on what the FBI had been doing. So back before COVID, I used to go and go into the office um, regularly. And we actually have a full page ad from the Washington Post uh, from 1961 calling for the House Un-American Activities Commission to be committee to be eliminated. And the signatories include Martin Luther King Jr., W.B. Du Bois, Eleanor Roosevelt and Norman Thomas, the former uh, perennial Socialist Party candidate and, and minister, I believe. Uh, so he did get really interesting collections of people to sign these. these oh, absolutely. There were, there were, it was quite a proud, proud and diverse collection of folks who would sign these petitions. I mean, you know, and we used the same tactic through the time that I was working with NCARL. Um, so it's, and the, and also the First Amendment Foundation, which was formed later. So but, you- yeah, right. You mentioned that at the time, we didn't know this surveillance was taking place. How does the FBI surveillance of Frank come to light? Somebody suggested to Frank that he should put in a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, now, it helps that that law existed. It helped that that law existed in, starting in, I think, 72. So there wasn't really an easy way to get those kinds of files before then. But by 1972... You could send a written request to any agency getting files. So, you know, and of course, when you're talking about the FBI, just sending a nice little note saying, hi, FBI, please send me my files. You often got bupkis, or if you got anything, it would be five pages and half of them would be what's called redacted, which means black lines were through all of the relevant, anything with anybody's name in it. So what you then do and what people still have to do often is sue under Freedom of Information Act, which is what they did. And the um, I think it was Judge Takashima started to get pretty mad because the, they'd have a hearing, a sort of status hearing on the case. And the FBI would say, oh, we found another 5,000 pages. Here they are. And then the next hearing, they'd say, oh, we found another 7,000 pages. And at some point, Judge Takashima said, enough of this. We just found another X pages. I want 
I want the whole file. And so at that point, that's when, you know, you get, you end up with something under 200,000 pages of files on, of, from the FBI on Frank on, and Carl on, and Kahuac on all the activities for 38 years of spying and disruption and efforts to neutralize uh, what these activists were doing. Pretty, pretty shocking. Um, how did the F- how was the FBI able to conduct this type of surveillance? What was the legislative framework that would have given them this authority or executive <laughs> framework? Yeah, well, you have to go back to how the FBI was formed, and it was pretty much it was who it was Hoover's baby from the get go, Edgar Hoover, and and it was formed really as a political body to stop leftists to go after unions to go to try to destroy unions, to go after, you know, whoever, whoever was the poor people's and people of color's political movements, all of those were always the target of the FBI. Now, there were legally authorized, there, there was a law, there were laws in place to help facilitate that spying, but the kinds of things that the FBI did went way beyond what was legal. And it was because Hoover ran a fiefdom, really, there was not nobody and and blackmailed any any and all politicians who might try to stop him, including presidents. Nobody, nobody stopped him. And and not, and on top of that, he had a secret filing system for the black, what are called black bag jobs. So there, it was pretty common for agents to be assigned to do uh, illegal break-ins into offices of different groups, whether it's the Black Panther Party or the Lawyers Guild or NCARL or, who, you know, just unions, you know, name it, people's homes, those illegal break-ins and obviously um, wiretaps and things were not authorized by anybody. Nobody went to a judge to do any of that stuff. They were black bag jobs, and they and there was a whole separate filing system into which the results of those break-ins was filed. So and that wasn't filed until the Pike, the Church and Pike committees, you know, significantly after Hoover's death in '72. So, what do you think are the lessons from this story for activists today? I think there are well, there's a bunch of lessons. You sure, certainly should make uh, lemonade out of lemons. If you get try to figure out if if you get attacked or you know otherwise are stymied, uh, it's important to try to publicize what you can and analyze it and characterize it and um, do what you can to to help people to learn lessons from it. You should certainly make sure you've got good political lawyers who understand the rationale for what you're, why you're doing what you're doing instead of just some Joe off the street, because you're going to need competent, experienced legal folks, especially in, you know, especially if you're getting, if you're really getting up against uh, powerful folks. You need to mobilize across sectors. So the kind of, the fact that Frank and Nkahuac were recognized as being helpful to the civil rights movement 
you know, from in all different, you know, in all different areas. Obviously, King, but John Lewis, C.T. Vivian, all these folks are people who, with whom Frank and others were working closely, um, and who rec- who felt that Frank was helping them. So when if you go into it, if you're if you're trying to get allies, you don't go go and get allies and say hi, you need to work with me to help me. Rather, you need to go into those movements and say, how can we help you and follow that up with actual action? The other thing I would say is don't expect victories to happen quickly and don't expect them to be to be long-lasting once they've happened because, you know, I, I think of a lot of times of, of this kind, these kinds of actions as being... Um, a wave. So, for example, we did a lot of work on opposing covert operations and opposing tax on uh, Muslims. And in both of those situations, we got pretty close to some pretty decent legislative victories. And and then, you know, 9-11 happened, for example, and we were, that that took care of that movement pretty impressively until, you know, possibly the future, the near future now. So you've got to be prepared both to take advantage of people who are obviously doing bad things and publicize it and organize when you organize when you can. And then when you've got an opportunity to uh, fix something, you've got to have done your homework and organize all those different kinds of all those different sectors with whom you na- you have trust so that you can try you can whether it's changing legislation or policy or what you know whatever it is winning in the courts or winning in the court of public opinion for example i mean and, and the, the making lemonade out of lemons even even the most horrible things that happened to the arab american and muslim communities post 911 and i was you know we were actively part of that of the movement trying to limit the damage. I don't think we particularly succeeded. But one thing that we really did succeed in is because we had close, trusted connections to um, a lot of folks throughout the country um, in the Muslim community and Arab American communities, they knew, even when they were under the most vicious attack, that they had friends that they could call on, that who would support them in different kinds of ways. Um, so even though, uh, you know, we didn't succeed legislatively at all, we lost ter- horribly. Um, on the other hand, we were able to um, stand up for and defend people who whose rights w- were being trampled. So my final question for you is you were involved with NCARL for a, a long time. How did you become involved with NCARL and what were some of the things you, you worked on? I had been living in D.C. a while and moved away. And then when I came back, I learned about, I, I knew when I was first in D.C., I knew about Ann Carl. I'd known Esther Hurst, who was then directing it. Um, so I knew the organization. And then when I came back, I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to, I, I learned about a job, you know, with Ann Carl and, and jumped at it because I knew the organization. And I'd been working with the National Lawyers Guild for probably Oh, 15 years by that point. So, you know, I'd already had, I already was in a, basically a sister organization. And we worked on the, when I started, it was in the 80s. And we were, the, the U.S. was involved in 
trying to, again, still trying to overthrow what they thought were unfriendly governments like uh, Nicar- the Nicaragua. They were supporting the vicious regimes in El Salvador, and we were involved in opposing that kind of intervention, government intervention, and um, in overthrowing governments, but certainly, and also uh, at the same time, the U.S. was blocking refugees from from El Salvador in particular from coming into the U.S., and these were folks who had very valid asylum claims um, because they'd been tortured and their families disappeared. So it was a little bit more of a of a international focus, but at the same time, we were also still we were dealing with the with the lawsuit against the FBI and publicizing uh, the findings from that. So we were you know we were talking about the role of the FBI and trying to limit political spying, red squads. There was there's been a movement that for a while we killed and then it's. As, as I was saying, in terms of lessons, resurfaced that where the FBI would basically have a sister or brother organization with the, with the local police to do to facilitate what I think of more as political spying, but it's also it's characterized as anti-terrorism. But that's a that's a big umbrella which can that covers a lot of different things, many of which are legal, kind of like the fight against communism did, which was which covered effort to improve the lives of poor people and people of color. So, you know, that those were some of the kinds of things that we were doing. And we and also we published we got book written about the biography of Frank Wilkinson, which I incorrectly but intentionally labeled a First Amendment felon. He was actually he was actually a misdemeanant, but that doesn't that's not a great title. But, no, it's not. So, <laughs> so First Amendment felon and and also, and before that, Dick Riley, who was, you know, one of Frank's co co conspirators who came out of Chicago, wrote uh, a smaller book that I think is a very uh, a good read. It's the FBI versus the First Amendment that talks about the specifically about the loss our lawsuit against the FBI. Kit, thank you for uh, for joining us today. That was Kit Gage telling our story of FBI surveillance. Two things are mentioned I want to call attention to. One was the assassination of Fred Hampton. The other was the role of FOIA in exposing FBI surveillance. Previously in this podcast series, we did an episode about both of those topics. And I would invite you, if you have not already listened to them, to check out stillspying.org and give them a listen. I think they're quite illuminating. Thank you for listening to the Still Spying podcast series. This is Chip Gibbons of Defending Rights and Dissent. If you enjoyed this series, I invite you once again to check out all of the fine work that Defending Rights and Dissent does at rightsanddissent.org. Like I mentioned before, we'll be doing a follow-up podcast series exploring national security whistleblowers, the Espionage Act, and the media. So be sure to get on our email list so you can know when that comes out. And thank you for listening.